This episode is sponsored by Airbnb. The focus of season three is all about how art and creativity can be used to bring about social change, combating racism, discrimination, and ultimately finding beauty through justice. Airbnb's mission is to help create a world where people can belong anywhere, and they wanted to support these conversations. And throughout the season, I'll be featuring some of their actions in this space. So stay tuned for that. Okay, let's start the show. Sadiso, a musician, songwriter, producer, and composer. I also teach. I'm fascinated by process, how we make what we make, why we make what we make. As a musician, I'm always learning from and inspired by other creatives, other musicians, artists, the arts itself, people. In short, life all inform the music I make. And I think that learning from others enriches not only our own art, but the arts. And why holding up the ladder? Well, because we're all trying to get somewhere and I think we build something stronger if we help each other. If we hold up the ladder rather than pull it up from under us as we climb. I'll be talking to all kinds of creatives about process, lessons learned, things that inspire us, the music we're listening to, what makes us who we are and the help we've had along the way. So join me as we climb, holding up the ladder. I get really excited when I, when I'm asked that question, um, because people don't relate beauty to the work of justice, you know, just beauty is something that is, um, it's, you know, um, extravagant, maybe unnecessary, um, but it's good to have, but it's not really a core essence of justice. And, um, I, I would like to, um, confidently say that is not the case. Mm. Um, true justice cannot be achieved with uh, without true beauty. We've come full circle and reached the end of season three. Time really flies. I started the season expressing my desire to talk about social justice, racism and discrimination. I gave the example of the Japanese art of kintsugi, the broken vessel that is mended to make new. With my guests from across creative disciplines and from around the world, We examine these societal broken pieces as an essential component to enable the mending. And as we mend, these cracks aren't hidden, rather they're accentuated with the Japan gold lacquer, so that what we are left with is something more beautiful than before. And who better to talk about these Kintsugi ideals than the person who introduced me to this concept, return guest, artist Makoto Fujimura. This time he joins me with his incredible wife, lawyer and justice advocate, Hai Jin Shim. If you haven't listened to the episode with Mako from last season, here's an excerpt. You know, Kintsugi is a beautiful metaphor, metaphor for new creation because it is about mending to make new with gold rather than fixing to make it look perfect. You accentuate the fractures, the imperfections, and then that resulting kintsugi bowl is more valuable than the original before it broke. So that that is the most beautiful example of something 
uh, you know, kind of an antidote to Western industrial perfection. Um, this, this is how most of us <laughs> experience life. We, we go through brokenness. And what to do about that is the, re- the result of a Western, you know, mindset that has created this uh, pressure to be perfect and to, you know, if you're broken, you fix it as if so that nobody knows, right? But this Japanese way of heating is so, uh, Japanese way of mending is so heating because, you know, no, you accentuate the fractures. You value your fractures. You, in fact, uh, you know, one of the kintsugi path is to hold the fragments and behold the fragments for a long time before you try to mend it. And um, if you learn to do that, and if you can see the fragments, broken pieces as beautiful, then the work can begin to understand what this generative potential of your piece can bring to your own life. This episode was so powerful. And whilst it was recorded sometime in June, the themes remain ever relevant. We talk about the ways in which beauty, art and justice intersect. Can beauty be found in justice? Can art be used as an instrument for justice? So I think um, it's really about looking at what's happening in this world and respond with love as artists in our own industry, right? And then start thinking about what can I make that is good and beautiful, right? And that's going to bear the fruit of not culture war, but culture care. Who gets to be an artist? Are lawyers and doctors and engineers artists? Are artists advocates for justice? Aristotle defined art as a capacity to make. Uh, so that in that definition, uh, there, there's a lot of you know things that like medicine, uh, which will be considered part of uh, medical arts, um, you know, as well as um, uh, practicing law or uh, whatever we are making um, is should be considered part of the artistry of, of, of human endeavors. We talk about faith and beauty. Beauty not as perfection, it's not cosmetic, but beauty as a journey, a journey into the new. And we can't talk about beauty without talking about sacrifice and suffering. Suffering that leads to what Mako calls generative love. Romeo and Juliet, right? The prince falls in love with a commoner. What happens? Well, Romeo doesn't, you know, hear of Juliet's feigned death because the messenger is quarantined. This is everywhere in the street. I just didn't notice it, right? So Hemingway wrote, out of trauma of of the wars, the Spanish war. Uh, You know, Picasso is painting Guernica. Uh, J.R. Tolkien and and C.S. Lewis are directly, directly influenced in the front lines of their wars. They come back traumatized. J.D. Salinger is writing Catcher in the Rye because he has to remove or deal with a post-traumatic syndrome. Okay, T.S. Eliot is writing, uh, you know, with with the blitz still echoing in his ears. What's happening? Well, it seems to be that in that very heart of darkness and scarcity, right, when they're facing the wasteland in front of them, they chose to create something new into the world. I have so much to say about this episode. So much so that it's better that I just say less and you listen and draw your own conclusions. But I will say this. 
I don't know what the past 18 months has been like for you, if it's been really hard or really joyful or a mixture of the two. Maybe you found it really difficult to be creative because of it, or maybe you've thrived creatively. Wherever you find yourself, I think we can agree that we've experienced and perhaps continue to experience a kind of global suffering. So I hope that through listening to this beautiful conversation, you'll be inspired to take the weight of these past 18 months and through it, you'll step into your new. Makoto Fujimura, Haijin Shim, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to be here. Good to be here. Yeah, I should say um, Mako is a return guest. Um, uh, I had lots of people quoting some of the things you were saying. And so I'm really excited to have you back. And this time with your wife or whom you tend, I love you tenderly call her your bride, which I think is really lovely. Yes, (laughs) she is indeed. (laughs) And this episode, this season is all about Um, creative ways to respond to social justice and anti-racist practices. And I wanted to bring you both on because Mako, you're an artist, an art advocate. You talk about culture care as an antidote to culture wars. And Haijin, you are a um, a lawyer in civil litigation. You also work in um, the nonprofit sector and pioneer lots of wonderful things. So I thought what I thought we'd do is I think I want to talk about beauty and I want to talk about justice and how they work together. So I thought perhaps it would be useful, maybe introduce yourselves a little bit, and then I'm going to ask you about first beauty and art and then about justice. Right. And uh, Hedge and I, uh, our relationship is exactly that, justice and beauty coming together. And also in a fractured time, you know, our marriage represents uh, something that is uh, in, in the past has in in and and right now be um, between Korea and Japan. Japan is my roots, and Hajin um, comes from Korea, and is is uh, has a acrimonious relationship, mm-hmm. even though they share so much in common. And historically. Um, the uh, Korean culture has been such an instrumental part of Japanese culture, but often they're seen as separate and, and so forth. So in many respects, uh, we uh, our relationship represents um, what this podcast is about. <laughs> um, I uh, was born in Boston in the U.S., and uh, my father is a research scientist, so we traveled all over, but I spent my uh, young years, uh, primary school years in Japan, and then uh, came back to U.S. for middle school and high school and college, and went back to Japan for uh, graduate studies in Nihonga, Japanese uh, Japanese style painting, which is a technique that harkens back to the 16th and 17th century. And I'm using the same technique and materials uh, called Nihonga uh, in my contemporary work. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're getting ready for uh, exhibits uh, in New York and other places. So um, what you see behind me, if you could see see it uh, um, in my studio, uh, two very large monumental sized paintings uh, painted with um, uh, pulverized minerals, azurite and malachite, um, and they're called walking on water. So uh, art that dares to ask the impossible question, um, can we walk on water?
Well, it's so it's so good to be here. Um, so um, my name is Hejin Shem and Fujimura, now married to um, to Fujimura, and uh, we are actually a pandemic couple. And so, wow. yeah, we were able to get to know each other um, a lot quicker because of the you know uh, lockdown where we had to you know we couldn't travel anymore for our work, which we, we used to do a lot. And gave us a lot of time to be together and really learn about um, not only each other, but uh, being able to share what's happening in the world and what does that mean for us uh, to respond to the trauma the world is experiencing and how to um, approach it. Because uh, the, the the way they approach any um, problems or trauma can really bear a different kind of a direction leading to a different kind of fruit. So, mm-hmm. you know, we think about uh, the processes and the direction as well as the fruit of our work a lot. Um, so, you know, I have this, you know, amazing partner that I can um, journey with, with mm-hmm. all of that. And as a background, I was born and raised in Korea and came to the States when I was uh, a teenager and uh, finished my um, college and, and the law school um, education in New York City and became a, a lawyer um, in the early 2000 mm-hmm. and uh, began practicing litigation and business law. And uh, now I have my own law firm that I've been um, leading for about uh, eight plus almost nine years now. Uh, and uh, our, we have offices in New York and New Jersey, but I have a, um, a small but really mighty team. Mm. And uh, a lot of our work involves businesses and business owners who have been very affected by the pandemic. Right. Um, but also um, a big part of our work is to advocate for um, artists mm. uh, as well as uh, people uh, who cannot afford to hire their own lawyer. Um, and uh, we closely work with the nonprofit organization that I co-founded called Embers International. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, with that work, um, you know, I'm a CEO of Embers International, which is a nonprofit organization that protects, restores, and empowers the victims of injustice globally. But right now we focus on um, uh, the people in India and especially the women and children who are victims of sex trafficking in a red light area um, in, in Mumbai. Mm-hmm. And um, so, but for the past uh, one, almost one and a half years, mm-hmm. we've been doing a lot of COVID relief work, sending not only food and medicine, but now oxygen concentrators and building right. oxygen plants. Uh, because right now, um, even children who are under age of 12 are infected severely. Mm-hmm. Wow. That they are in much need of oxygen and um, a long-term solution, really, for uh, the hospitals that are in the rural area. So um, I get to do that work with Mako, and I'm so happy to be here. We can talk more about all that work that we're doing together. Um, yeah. But I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, and and I'm I'm really excited excited it's, to have you both. It's interesting because before I became a musician, well. I'd say alongside, I trained as a human rights lawyer. So it's really interesting. The art and the justice resonates with me really, really strongly because that's my background. But I, I, I thought I'd start by, you know, asking what is art? But before I do that, I want to read something that you wrote in um, Art and Faith, your, your new book. And you have spoken about us moving away from Maka, from utilitarian pragmatism, this 
productivity? You know, what can I get from you? How much can you produce? And you said, art is another way of knowing the world. And artists are being pushed to the margins because of their intuitive knowledge. Um, I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about what is art and, and, and beauty and how they work together. Aristotle defined art as a uh, capacity to make. Uh, so that in that definition, uh, there, there's a lot of, you know, things that like medicine, uh, which will be considered part of uh, medical arts, um, you know, as well as um, uh, practicing law or uh, whatever we are making um, is should be considered part of the artistry of, of, of human endeavors. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, uh, as a artist who's, you know, professional in that sense, uh, you're making a living off of your work. So there, there's always the business side of art, um, which um, which can become very transactional, by the way, and, and bottom line driven just as any anything else. And, you know, uh, uh, true artists are ones that, um, I think in some ways, um, you know, border stalkers who, who who don't really fit into the conventional paradigms, and and so they they are always meandering um, in 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 the borderlands, and and therefore very valuable to the tribal realities uh, because when you're locked down in a homogeneous tribe especially you don't think outside of yourself and you don't know how to relate to others Uh, artists are not like that they they are instinctively able to communicate in cross-tribal language and you know understand other cultures and and they're able to bring that uh fruit uh, back back into their own uh tribal cultures. So, um, you know, I, I think that actually relates to this conversation uh, of beauty and justice issues, uh, because they both require uh, a, a understanding of diversity, uh, understanding of abundance and plurality that, that is built into a world. And yet we try to eliminate that, right? Uh, by segmenting and, and, and creating, uh, even in academia, you have a highly specialized, uh, isolated, you know, uh, departments that then they, 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 sometimes they don't talk to each other. Um, and human nature is, is to um, demand certainty and homogeneity. And, and that's, I, I, I have thought recently that that's part of a, a mechanism of sin. You know, we, we, we want to just control the outcome. Mm. And we're afraid of moving outside of our, uh, you know, let's say tribal walls. Um, and that's that's just the way we are. And all of us are that way. And, um, you know, and everybody has to, uh, but, but in order to create or in order to love, <laughs> you have to uh, go beyond that. Um, that that is that, that's why this conversation is uh, really needed, and um, that uh, you know we we uh, talk about the the challenges, both both the reality of what Hedgen's trying to do in the world uh, today, you know, to liberate um, those who are enslaved and and bring them to 
uh, you know, the, the, to bring bring the world into more just just world. But but at the same time, um, for for that journey, um, we we really uh, need not only her work to be a, a, a art of mm. beauty, but but the clients, right, that she was, she's working with, these victims, uh, also require a a understanding of beauty as well. Yeah. And um, why do you think beauty is so important? And and both of you can respond to that. But why do you think beauty is so important? Well, go ahead. And- <laughs> I get really excited when I. When I'm asked that question, um, because people don't relate beauty to the work of justice, you know, just beauty is something that is, um, it's, you know, um, extravagant, maybe unnecessary, um, but it's good to have, but it's not really a core essence of justice. And um, I, I would like to um, confidently say that is not the case. Mm. Um, true justice cannot be achieved with uh, without true beauty. And here's why. Um, I'll just give you an, an example. Um, when we um, rescue a child from a brothel who's been a victim of sex trafficking, and you know, I've been to the brothels, and it's a it's, it's a horrendous condition. Um, you will not, you can't even imagine. Uh, it's very hard to imagine the darkness that is in there. Um, the you know we we talk about um, uh, really poor living condition to be like living like a dog, right? But it's actually as if you are living like a rat. Mm-hmm. When you walk in, you know you smell the filthiness. You see the filthiness. You also feel that filthiness to your. Uh, DNA and it's very very sad sad condition mm-hmm. and um, and you are um, really traumatized because you are um, uh, being abused and exploited exploited into a, to a degree that is just in, inhuman unhuman and so you know you're finally rescued from the darkness but we actually don't call that moment to be a moment of justice being achieved. Mm-hmm. Because this child is still traumatized. There is a long journey of restoration ahead of her. So we wouldn't call that moment justice. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't dare to do that Mm -hmm. to this child. Of course, you know, um, the the people who have abused her, they need to be held accountable. And, you know, let's even assume that that moment, those people are being held accountable. But that is not justice being achieved. So now this child has a long journey of restoration. You know, it may take months or years. Uh, it will take lots of people coming alongside her. And, um, but that will, be a, that will be a difficult journey. And we can all kind of empathize with, empathize with that. Even if we didn't have the same kind of trauma, we do understand, uh, you know, trauma in our own, own lives. Now, this child... It's so hard for this child to see herself yet that she's beautiful. She's worthy because the trauma uh, has affected her in a way that she can't really see herself that. 
Mm-hmm. But there will be a moment, and that is that is our hope in this work of justice, that she will begin to see herself as beautiful or beautiful again. Mm-hmm. And that is the moment that we know that justice is being accomplished mm-hmm. because she has been really restored. And she can never go back to where she was before uh, because the scar is there. The fracture and the trauma happened. We cannot erase it from her life. You know, mm-hmm. we all know that. And we're not going to even pretend that that can happen. But instead, what we can do, uh, what we can help is to turn that trauma into something new. Mm-hmm. And that trauma being made into something new. Therefore, with the trauma, she's now more valuable and more beautiful than before. Mm-hmm. And that is the moment that we can say, mm-hmm. yes, mm-hmm. the justice has been achieved. Right? So um, without beauty, we can't really explain justice. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to see that from the very beginning. Um, it's not because the word justice, the, uh, the root word of justice that we mm-hmm. use in English language actually come from um, two different um, um, Hebrew word uh, that talks about restoration as well as um, human relationships in a harmonious and flourishing state. Mm. So when she becomes um, not only restored to a place of a beauty, but she begins to have this flourishing relationship with mm-hmm. others mm-hmm. and um, in the place of forgiveness, place mm-hmm. of dignity and acceptance. And then she can flourish as she is called to be, mm-hmm. right? What she desires her to be. That is a moment that we call that's justice, that's righteousness. Mm-hmm. So um, I think a deeper understanding of justice is required to understand the beauty mm-hmm. that is core, actually core of justice. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think artists, um, especially the ones who are creating beauty understanding, having the understanding of beauty are the ones who can actually advocate for justice really well. So many questions, so many questions, but I want, I want Mako to talk about why beauty is so important. And then I'm going to circle back and highlight some of the powerful, powerful things you've said. Beauty in Western definition um, can be this perfected state, uh, complete state. Uh, But, but in Japanese sense, beauty is in, in, in the brokenness and, and imperfections and requires sacrifice to attain. Um, And so in, in the Japanese definition, which is what I uh, talk, talk about in uh, my other book, uh, Silence and Beauty is, it's a component that uh, also is connected to justice, right? Because it requires sacrifice to attain and and it, you're facing uh, death in a way, uh, you directly. And, and you, you're saying that there's imperfection in, in what we see. Um, and yet that can be an entry point um, in, into this very transcendent reality uh, that we call beauty. So 
in that sense, in, in that definition, which um, which is important to understand that there's more than cosmetic, you know, beauty. Um, there, there's more than something that is considered to be perfect um, as something that is beautiful. Um, there's breadth and depth to the definition of beauty. Um, and in, 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 in the definition that I just gave of a Japanese uh, sense, which actually uh, is influenced by Korean uh, philosophy, but, but anyways, that, that, that kind of development um, uh, is, is emblematic of how we might um, partake in a journey of the new, as Ajahn said, that, that, that captures both the imperfection and um, and the you know what what might be philosophically a teleological end of beauty, uh, which 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 is in 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 biblical terms that 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 is how we are seen by God. We are seen by God in in that state already uh, perfected state. But what is the perfected state? The perfected state is Jesus, right? The, in in the Bible, the post-resurrection appearance of Jesus Mm -hmm. is with his scars. His nail marks are still with him. And that's the definition, I I believe, biblical definition of perfection Mm -hmm. is is not something that is back to, let's say, Eden, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But but the city of God that, that is filled with people who who are human beings with scars that are fulfilled in, in their, uh, their calling and their destiny to, you know, be able to uh, uh, be makers uh, with the grand maker, um, co-creating into the new. Um, but we, we are, our wounds are, you know, that world is no longer with tears, so those wounds must become something other than what we feel, you know, right now, uh, you know, that causes pain, that causes uh, memories that, um, that you shrink away from or, you know, you're traumatized by God in some way uh, must redeem uh, that as, as the entry point into the new creation, just as, you know, Jesus invites us uh, through his wounds, we are healed. Mm, I love that. It, it's so funny because you guys are like walking metaphors for your relationship, for everything that you value. You know, there is, I love the words, um, Hijin, that you said about flourishing and harmonious, because I, I, I think when we think of justice being served, especially with, you know, um, George Floyd's murder and um, Derek Chauvin's conviction, I remember reading a lot of people saying, but it doesn't feel like justice, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and how do, but when you interpret what we're looking for when we're talking about justice, this sort of flourishing state and this harmoniousness, that's something beyond. And I know, Makoto, you talk about new newness. Yes. So I think what what I want to talk about a little bit is about how, I mean, you're already doing it, but how does justice, particularly if we look at the world that we're in right now, and there is just so much going on, we've got, there's stuff in Chile, there's stuff in Colombia, in India, 
in um, the Israel-Palestine conflict, America, like everywhere it seems, Ethiopia, Belarus, lots of things feel so unstable. How do we as people, as makers, so we we understand from what you've said, Mako, that being a maker, you don't have to be a professional artist to be a maker. We're all makers in some way because we all have capacity to make. How do we sort of work towards creating what you said, hey, Gina, this, this harmonious, this state of harmoniousness, this state of flourishing? How do we do that? Marco talks about the culture care um, uh, in, in, in response to culture war. Um, and he can speak to that a lot more eloquently than <laughs> I can. Uh, but I think, you know, when we look at the culture war that's happening, you know, that breaks those relationships, right, that um, um, creates tension and uh, conflict and trauma rather than yeah. peacemaking and harmony and flourishing, mm-hmm. uh, we get really angry. And rightly so. I get really angry. And I think it's okay to have that holy mm-hmm. anger. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, our tendency, how we are kind of taught, um, you know, throughout generations is to um, kind of fight back mm-hmm. with the same response mm-hmm. as the culture war that's mm-hmm. happening. Mm-hmm. So you get sucked into that kind of conflict um, without you even knowing, yeah. right? So you think that, you know, I think that I am being righteous and trying to do what is right and just, just, mm-hmm. but um, I get sucked into the culture war myself, right? Mm-hmm. So I think, um you know, what we need to do, and I, you know, we've been talking about this quite a bit too, is that when we see a conflict like that, that breaks this harmony and flourishing state, I think we need to be making more of a beautiful things. Mm -hmm. Our response should be that we are going to actually love more, Mm -hmm. love deeper, create more beautiful things. That's going to be my response to the conflict that we're happening, that's happening. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, for example, when we, um, you know, for, for in terms of my work, um, you know, when we care for the children who are born into brothels, uh, it, these are the children, if you can imagine with me, they're born out of violence mm-hmm. because their mothers were raped in the brothel. And a lot of times they don't know their father. So they are, um, they have only a single mother. They live in a brothel um, and born into violence, out of violence, and they live in violence because the brothel is their home. And if you can imagine with me where they grow up, they don't have their own, own room. Mm-hmm. You know, brothel keeper is not going to create this playroom for mm-hmm. this child. Mm-hmm. There's no um, living order that is appropriate for a child. This child, in fact, does not have his or her own bed. Mm-hmm. This child grows up under the mother's bed where the mother has to see a client forcefully every mm-hmm. night. Mm-hmm. And if you can imagine an infant child, this infant child needs a mother to be right next to him mm-hmm. or her. Mm-hmm. Uh, this infant child will look for a mother at night. And will cry. But the night is when the mother has to be forced into work. Now, this child's cry is going to disrupt the business. 
So what happens with a child is that this child will be force-fed alcohol or drug ever since they are born so that they don't disrupt the business. And this, uh, this is kind of trauma that it should not happen to anybody, including Mm -hmm. these children. Now I get really angry because I know the children that we are caring for in the red light area that are still living in the brothel are the are at risk and are being treated that way. And they don't even know any better because that's all they know, mm. right? They don't get to go to school. They don't get to grow up as a child. Mm. They don't get to um, understand dignity of a human um, being or even flourishing of human relationships. Mm. All they have seen is their mom being treated like nothing, getting beaten up mm. and getting treated like dirt by the, by, by the clients. So in this kind of situation, um, if I were to respond to it with another violence, that is not going to help this child or end the cycle of this generational curse or oppression and exploitation. What I need to do is really start thinking about how can I be a maker in this situation that creates beauty and love and a community that can come around for this child and provide for education and the nutrition and, 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 um, and, and, and examples of human dignity to this child, right? Mm-hmm. So I have to think about how can I be creatively make a loving environment for this mm-hmm. child? Mm-hmm. And through that, um, Embers International has, um, has built this children's center in the red light area called Sahasi Embers. Mm-hmm. And Sahasi in Hindi means courageous. Mm-hmm. So we call our children courageous little flames. Mm-hmm. So I think um, it's really about looking at what's happening in this world and respond with love as artists in our own industry. Right. And then start thinking about what can I make that is good and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's going to bear the fruit of not culture war, but culture care. Mm-hmm. I, as a lawyer, um, you know, I consider myself an artist. And that's not because just, you know, I'm, I, you know, I, I married an artist, but mm-hmm. um, I can, I think in any industry, actually, in any profession, you can choose to be an artist or not an artist. Mm-hmm. So, what I mean by that is that. As a lawyer, I actually have to use my intuition quite a bit because I counsel different type of people, right? So all my clients, how they communicate, how they present their case, how they want to see their cases resolved is very, very different. So I need to be actually pretty creative in my approach to communicating to my client, presenting the case, and proposing certain solutions for my clients. So um, I can choose to be an artist in that moment. Right. And choose to uh, have the direction of making that's beautiful and loving towards creating beautiful relationships for my client. Mm -hmm. And but or I can choose to be not an artist and just have a very transactional relationship with my client. Right. So I think that can happen in any industry. Yeah. Um, you said, it's interesting because I, I watched a talk, Hyojin, that you did where you talked, and I thought this was so interesting because you were talking about in, in the area of civil lit- litigation and um, creating beautiful contracts. Yes. And I had never thought of that because uh, normally in contract law, we talk about, you know, one person's benefit at the expense of another person. 
And you're like, what can you get from me? What can I get from you that is going to give me the most and in some way take something from you? And you even talk about going beyond mutuality, which is, you know, we're going to serve each other to something which is actually loving your neighbor through contract. And I was like, wow, I had never thought of that. And I, I, I haven't forgotten you, Mako, but I want you to expand on that because I just thought it was such a, a, a new paradigm and a new way of thinking in, in, in law. Yeah, thank you for asking that question. And um, for those who have not heard my talk before, so I'll maybe explain a little bit, you know, what I mean by that. So, you know, I serve a lot of um, business owners and businesses. And so, you know, they have contracts all the time. And what I have found is exactly what you explain that, you know, contract relationship, you know, you think about protecting your own interest only, but you don't, we don't stop there because, um, as you said, like the more I get out of this contract at your expense, I feel like I benefit from it. But is that true benefit? Mm. Right? I think if we, we live in this world where everything is connected, right? When you have something, when you are taking something from someone, although it's illegal at their expense, um, that is going to have some kind of impact later on. Mm-hmm. whether it's your own business or someone else's business that affects your life, right? Because, I mean, we know um, during pandemic, like we never thought that, you know, people who deliver items to yeah. us was essential workers. Mm-hmm. But without that, we would have, we, we could have yeah. been in a place where we have no food at home, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it was, um, so everything is connected in this economy, yeah. in this global world. Now, um lawyers are trained and um, trained to represent, of course, uh, the best interests of your client. And I think I believe in that. That is true. And we should continue to do that. But it's a matter of like, what is really the in the best interest of your client? Mm-hmm. Like, what is that? Is that the zero sum game? Mm-hmm. Is it the transactional relationship that your business client uh, will continue to have? Um, or is it kind of the beautiful relationship we talked about, the flourishing relationship of both parties in a contract where they actually feel like, yes, I don't have to, I don't have to uh, feel like I have to protect myself against you, mm-hmm. right? Because this is not an adversarial mm-hmm. relationship. A lot of times mm-hmm. when we look at a contract, um, it, it, it starts with a really um, cordial relationship, like, oh, I'm going to do business with you. You know, yeah, let's get together. Yes, let's talk about this. I think we can, you know, be a mutual benefit to each other. And then uh, when a contract is presented, it kind of a lot of times leads to a very adversarial situation. Mm. <laughs> like, oh, I don't think I can give you that. You know, I need to get more of that. And that's not what I agreed to and etc. But if we can have a relationship where we, first of all, think about mutuality. You know, even that is hard um, in this kind of culture or society. But why don't we start from the mutuality of benefit, okay? And then think about even further from there, right? So we have the same kind of, you know, it, this, this, this contract is going to benefit you and me, mm-hmm. right? And if we can achieve that, I think that's a, a fabulous success. Mm-hmm. But if we can go even beyond that, 
And I start thinking about what can I give you or how can I help you so that you can do your portion of the responsibility under this contract better. And then my counterpart thinks about, asks me a question, how can I serve you and help you and provide certain terms where I can help you do a better job under this contract? Because ultimately, you doing a better job under this contract for me, it's beneficial for me, right? So if we can think a little bit outside of the box, out of, outside of my own self-interest, um, and then this relationship can be a long-term relationship. And even if the contract itself is not a long-term contract, right? Like, you know, I hire a consultant for a project. I don't need to have a, a consultant for the entire life of my business. But I build this relationship with this consultant that is now actually based on trust, mm-hmm. based on not only mutuality, but looking after each other. Mm-hmm. That is going to bear a lot more fruit later on. Mm-hmm. So um, in a way, I think, um, I think it's being also really smart. You know, when you are loving others, people, loving your neighbors, loving your counterpart in a contract, um, you are actually thinking about a really long, long-term, um, beautiful, flourishing relationship that's going to benefit you, your business, and your community after all. Um, so I would love to see that happening. It's not easy. Um, it's really not easy. But I think um, what I try to do is at least have that kind of tone from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And this entire contract might not be the kind of a perfect contract, mm-hmm. perfectly beautiful contract, you know. But the thing is, as Marco said, beauty is not about perfection, anyways, right? Mm-hmm. If we can have yeah. one of the terms that can achieve that kind of beauty between this relationship, mm-hmm. that's a great, that's a great mm-hmm. fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when we do that, I think that's when, um, you know, lawyers like myself become an artist, right? You're making beauty out of this business yeah. relationship that we never thought of. But, yeah. um, you know, it sounds extravagant, but beauty is about extravagance. There you go. And we are so drawn to it. You know, yeah. like, why are we so drawn to beautiful things? Because we are, our core craves it. Right. And so that's what I love to see in legal industry. I love to see in the slums and the relay districts um, with the women and children that we serve. Love to see that happening all over the world in this country, you know, during this time. Yeah. It's beautiful. Maka. (laughs) Yeah. So the connection between beauty and love and justice is made very clear in what Helen just said. Um, If we have a transactional model, of uh, assumption of scarcity model, which is a, basically a Darwinian model mm-hmm. um, of limited resource environments and you know people vying for whatever they can get out of the relationship, somebody wins and somebody loses. Now that that is a typical assumption uh, we make in everything, with politics to economics. But is that true? You know, they, all, all the artists are asking that, you know, that question. Is this, is this the only way possible? Um, and, and not only artists, but people who have enduring voices ask that question. Dr. King, I have a dream speech. Why is that speech one of the most um, important speeches of 
you know, uh, 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 you know, but not just my generation, but beyond, right? Um, it's because he didn't just talk about the legal rights, right, of cashing that promissory note. He says in the beginning, if you listen back, he he was making a case, a legal case. And yet what remains is the vision, right? That I have a dream vision. Now that's an artist, right? And and that 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 kind of connection to make a legal case into an actual, let's say a performance piece of, of, of kind of a preaching that he always did. Uh, and yet, he, you know, his his disciples thought he, he wouldn't be allowed to do that on the Capitol, you know, because that's, that's that's just preaching. That's just too dreamy. No one's gonna, no one's gonna get it. Well, the, you know, history proved that concern wrong. And Martin Luther King Jr. knew that, and also Mahalia Jackson standing behind him and saying, you know, saying, uh, you know, tell him about the dream, tell him about the dream. She knew as a jazz musician, right, um, that music and, and pronouncement of this dream is what's going to endure in the, in the history. And that is what's going to propel justice, right? So it's, it's, it's not just argument that this is, this is a rational thing to do. This, you know, this is demanded of the law, of Constitution of the United States. But what are we marching towards? You're marching towards that future, you know, where where integration is real, right? So, so all the all these all these things are you know connected. Now we make a huge assumption every time we say to somebody, you know, um, you know that sounds great, uh, but it's a fantasy. It's, it's it's not it's not going to you know the world doesn't work like that. Honey, you know, <laughs> and, 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 and you know, you're told as a uh, third grader, right? That, that don't be a musician, artist, don't be whatever you're dreaming about. Don't be a dancer because you know that's not how the world works. Mm. You have to get practical. You have to survive. You have to win. Mm. But that's a huge assumption we're making. That that is a huge assumption we're making to justify thought that is actually very truncated and incomplete and poor. Because everybody knows, right? When we fall in love, we move beyond practicality. We do like absolutely extravagant things if we love somebody. And we don't, you know, we don't just make a case for it, you know, saying, you know, I have this, I have that. So, you know, it's transactional. No, that, that would be the horrible way to date somebody, right? <laughs> You go, you go see a sunset. You see, go, go, go listen to music. You, you, you know, you create together. You cook together. Whatever you're doing, you're making. You're making something that is unnecessary in terms of survival. Mm. You're, you're making something that doesn't even make sense. You know, to to others perhaps watching. You. Mm, mm, mm. That's what love does. So beauty flows out of love. Right, and and this beauty is the vista uh, that we have to paint in order for justice to be carried into reality. So it's all it's all connected, and and that's why um, you know when when I, I as an artist, when I make beauty, I am advocating, I'm leading people into that place where um, this uh, work of advocacy 
whatever that is, you know, for um, um, you know ending human trafficking in our time, or uh, artists who uh, feel marginalized, you know, and and cannot speak, um, uh, you know, because because of the institutional realities, uh, whether it be recording industry or, or church or whatever, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and those things are connected too. And and our relationship represents, from my side, obviously creating beauty, but realizing that I I am an advocate as well, mm-hmm. and 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 from her side. She's obviously an advocate. That's what she does uh, well. But but also she realized that she she she's an artist. It's so beautiful because I think what. As you both talk, what I'm reminded is what underpins everything is love. Yes. And it's what drives everything. And it actually, it, it, it allows us to think about what's possible. And, you know, you do talk about in your book, Culture Care, about, you know, Mahalia Jackson saying to Martin, tell, tell them about the dream, tell them about the dream, you know, and how artists illuminate the path of empathy. Yes. And then I was thinking about, you know, you have artists that as a musician, obviously, I think about music a lot, but you have artists that speak about the times we're in. But you also have artists that sing or speak about what's possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They speak about the dream. Like I was thinking of Lavi Sifri, who sang Something Inside So Strong or Sam Cooke, A Change Is Gonna Come. But, yeah. but what I also feel, though, is the tension because... In this longing to pursue love, there's a deep amount of suffering. The women that have come out of sex trafficking, the suffering, the artists that are marginalized, trying to do all these beautiful things in an ecosystem that doesn't allow for it. Um, You know, Van Gogh, we celebrate him now, but he died penniless with an ear missing. You know, (laughs) how do we reconcile this driving for love and undergirding for love, but suffering at the same time. How do we do that? Right. So again, beauty and sacrifice are connected. And, um, and the, you know, what I argue in my book is, is that the fruit of our labor uh, is literally the new creation. So whatever we may face on this side of eternity, and it may require enormous sacrifice, uh, even to the extent of losing our lives for something uh, that we love. But, but that in itself assumes a different assumption than just surviving, right? That, that, that obviously um, it says that there's something more enduring than my life, uh, something more enduring than what I, you know, what I can say or do um, beyond my existence on the side of eternity. And because I believe that, and in some ways I believe that even that thinking creates a generative path um, in our brains as, uh, you know, as people are listening to this, right? That, that, you know, you might, you might say, well, that, that sounds too good to be true. You know, is that, is that possible? Well, even that thinking is creating something new into the world. 
because even you know like like as a child that was easy to right we read a book and we believe it right we 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 read fairy tales and we know it's fairy you know it's it's not it's not necessarily true so it may be a myth but it has magic in you know it creates this momentum in our hearts to be enlarged rather than saying that you know this is all there is and and you know nothing else has come on you know everything has to be you know um, basically proven to be a material reality no we, we don't believe that at all uh, none of us do but but we have come to um, you know, actually preach this uh, as as a way of surviving uh, our time when you know when during the pandemic i did a lot of thinking about what happened in the past in such a time as this right mm-hmm. so during the black plague what happened Frangelico painted the dominican friar painted and you know one third of the population is dying around him you know like three popes were excommunicating in in you know five years um, you know, there are invasions everywhere. What, how could anybody paint, right? <laughs> but he did, and it, it, it led into the Renaissance. Shakespeare created the Globe Theater outside of London because he couldn't build it in London because of the Black Plague, right? So he's, he created a system in which commoners can enjoy the same show with princes and, you know, queens up on top, obviously, sequestered. Right, so they're kept safe in the outdoor theater, and and you know they're they're ex- literally the play itself is is playing this out. Romeo and Juliet, right? The prince falls in love with a commoner. What happens? Well, Romeo doesn't you know hear of Juliet's feigned death because the messenger is quarantined. This is everywhere in the street. I just didn't notice it. Right. So Hemingway wrote out of trauma of, of the wars, the Spanish war, uh, you know, Picasso is painting Guernica. Uh, Gerald Tolkien and, and C.S. Lewis are directly, directly influenced in the front lines of their wars. They come back traumatized. J.D. Salinger is writing Catcher in the Rye because he has to remove or deal with a post-traumatic syndrome. Okay, T.S. Eliot is writing, uh, you know, with, with the blitz still echoing in his ears. W- what's happening? Well, it seems to be that in that very heart of darkness and scarcity, right, when they're facing the wasteland in front of them, they chose to create something new into the world. And that's what we call civilization. Mm-hmm. So, So this idea that this is just, a nicety, you know, extra thing that, that, you know, beauty is something that's nice to have when you have extra money is nonsense. It, it is the stuff, the essence of humanity. This is the essence of civilization and it is the essence of justice as well. Wow. Wow. Yes. Hey, Jin. Res- yeah. Sorry. Please. <laughs> <laughs> How do I respond to that? <laughs> I don't know. I'm like, wow. 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 <laughs> Yes, um, I, I think there is a, a mystery between a suffering and, and love. Mm. Um, because, you know, I, I mean, nobody can really explain why so much suffering in the world, right? And we're not going to even try to explain that. You know, we live in a very, very broken world and we have a suffering globally right now. You know, we have suffering of individual 
own sufferings and we have suffering in a nation, you know, and uh, the yes. suffering that's a, a result, the direct result of the trauma and the conflict, mm-hmm. right? So um, we have, so I think we, we have to start from um, admitting that there is suffering mm-hmm. and everybody mm-hmm. suffers mm-hmm. in some level and, and we all have our own stories. Yeah. But there's something so beautiful about mysteriously, that is, um, we don't advocate for suffering. We don't want anyone to suffer. We don't. Mm-hmm. I don't want to suffer. But suffering happens. It's a part of life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we can have another philosophical, you know, mm-hmm. discussions about that in another time. But um, when you choose to love during or despite mm-hmm. suffering, mm-hmm. or even sometimes because of suffering, mm-hmm. there's something so powerful yeah. about that love that is undeniable, unbreakable, unchallenging, like unchallengeable, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So um, just a personal kind of um, story that I can share. Um, my mom suffered quite a bit in her you know, life. Um, she had a um, terminal illness that she didn't actually quite know until much later in her life. She had other um, suffering uh, that uh, uh, arose out of her relations um, that wasn't really um, her fault, you know? And um, so it's, 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 in a way, it's injustice, right, against her. And uh, the, the kind of illness that she suffered, you know, that could have been prevented or cared for at a young age and it was never, so it was neglected. So, uh, which led to a, a, a really great suffering later on in her, in her life. And, um, and of course, you know, by God's grace, she's all better now and you can never tell that she was ever ill in her life. And so, you know, it's a big, big yeah. crisis, but during her, during the time of her suffering, she chose to have me, raise me, and love me. And I didn't really realize at the time, but looking back, knowing the level of the depth of her suffering and how much she chose to love me to a point of true sacrificial love binds me to her in a way that is just so very special. You know, the kind of um, um, uh, relationship that I have with my mother is not just a really good mother and daughter relationship, mm-hmm. but we have this deep, deep friendship yeah. that is unbreakable. Yeah. And I think that's because I know that she chose to love me during her suffering. Mm-hmm. So if we can do that with others, mm-hmm. like I will choose to love you despite my suffering, your suffering, our yeah. suffering, suffering of this world, mm-hmm. that love is actually, I think, enduring. Mm-hmm. And it can be eternal. Mm-hmm. And they can lead to other generative love. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. And I think there, that's the mystery, right? Mm-hmm. Because if, if I didn't know about my mm-hmm. mom's suffering, Mm-hmm. I think it would have been a very different relationship. I think I, we would have still had a great relationship. I would have respected yeah. her. She would have been my mother. But the kind of the bond that I have with her, I don't think I'll have that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As I record this, the world is watching the unfolding destruction of the nation of Afghanistan. 
the collapse of the Afghan government, the takeover of the Taliban, the undoing of 20 years of work trying to rebuild an already fragile nation, borders to other nations closed so that only the rich can leave and Biden's decision to withdraw US troops from Afghanistan. You may have heard me talk about the fact that I trained in human rights law and particularly in international law. And one of the things you learn is that the role of human rights is to enshrine in law pre-existing principles as truth. For example, because we all are part of the human race, we are all equal and all have inherent dignity and value. The law is then designed to uphold this truth and provide protection and recourse for people when these values are undermined. Article 3 of the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights states, I quote, Everyone has the right to life, liberty and security of person. What we know in reality, however, is that whilst these values may be true, every day, all around the world, we see them eroded. As I record this from the safety of my own home, I have no idea what it must feel like for the Afghan people. It's always easy to talk about things in abstract, intellectual terms, but these are real people with real lives, parents with real hopes and dreams for their children, who are literally running for their lives. In the midst of this humanitarian crisis, some are stepping up to offer their support to Afghan refugees. Airbnb.org has committed to offering free temporary housing to 20,000 Afghan refugees worldwide, the cost of which is funded through contributions to Airbnb.org from Airbnb and its co-founder, Brian Chesky, as well as donors to the Airbnb.org Refugee Fund. The announcement builds on Airbnb.org's work in this area with the creation of a $25 million refugee fund earlier this year. The fund serves to support refugees and asylum seekers worldwide, starting with programs run by non-profit partner organizations in the US and Central and South America. To find out how you can host a refugee through Airbnb.org, or maybe you can't be a host but you want to support housing for Afghan refugees, you can donate to airbnb.org forward slash refugees. All details are in the podcast blurb. British Somali poet Warsan Shire has a beautiful poem called Home. You may have read quotes from it here and there. I'm going to read a few excerpts from it because she encapsulates the terror and the torment of the loss of home in such visceral language, but I recommend reading the whole thing. No one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. You only run for the border when you see the whole city running as well. Your neighbours running faster than you, breath bloody in their throats. The boy you went to school with who kissed you dizzy behind the old tin factory is holding a gun bigger than his body. You only leave home when home won't let you stay. You have to understand that no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. No one burns their palms under trains, beneath carriages. No one spends days and nights in the stomach of a truck, feeding on newspaper unless the miles travelled means something more than the journey. No one crawls under fences. No one wants to be beaten, pitied. No one leaves home until home is a sweaty voice in your ear saying, leave, run away from me now. I don't know what I've become, but I know that anywhere is safer than here. You, 
you you well, I was going to say you stole the word I wanted to use the generative because that's like the word both of the examples that you've given is that it's a generative something new happens and the possibility of new is is even more beautiful than before and um, I've got two final questions that I always ask everybody what lessons have you learned in the context of everything that we have spoken about that that we can learn from that you'd like to share with us? Um, there is a, a great line that Marco spoke um, some time ago. I don't know if he realizes it, but, and that really um, rings true to me. Um, and I learn a lot, which I think kind of sums up what we talked about today. Um, he said, when you love, um, and that's just as an example, when you love somebody, um, it doesn't take away the capacity that you have to love. It actually increases mm -hmm. your capacity. Mm -hmm. And because you love someone or you love something, you actually can love more. Yes. And I think that's uh, the beauty and the mystery and generativity of love. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've learned. Um, through my practice as a lawyer, through my service, through Embers International, through our marriage, mm -hmm. and, and through um, learning and knowing and, and loving an artist mm -hmm. and becoming an artist every single day. And I think that helps me um, choose to love mm -hmm. despite whatever is happening. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful. Mako. So... When Moses <laughs> came down with the Decalogue, he, he at the same time people don't realize this. He was given this detailed um, design of the Tabernacle of Moses to house the law, mm -hmm. and and we often separate law give, givers um, with makers, but in biblical terms they're integrated, right? You, you can't have one without the other, and the reason why. That is, and by the way, the, the, the one of the terms that they use um, in Hebraic language of law giving is being a poet of the you know law giving is part of being a, uh, creating poetry mm -hmm. in, in community, and therefore it needs to be housed in this beautiful box that is exquisitely designed called the Ark of the Covenant with mercy seat on top, with cherubims on you know, top, uh, designed in uh, this impeccable craftsmanship. And um, and the, the people who are executing this, Bezerah and Horiab, are people who are first noted to be filled with the spirit, right? To, to, to be able to execute the design, but also to teach others mm -hmm. to do the same. And throughout Israeli history, this, this connection between what is doing um, justice work and, and law and obeying the law, this, the, 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 the uh, part of a um, communal way of honoring God through the, the law, is connected with making and connected with beauty. And, and so in, in that sense, this is not, um, you know, it, it was never meant to be separate. Mm -hmm. and, and when you see that beauty and, uh, and justice coming together and, and 
in, you know, in, in, in embedded in the lives of children who have been rescued and have been, you know, went through their education and, um, and now they're leading in front lines of this battle against COVID, risking their own lives um, to, to deliver babies and, and to be in front lines. It, it is, I mean, I have never seen such a uh, more beautiful mm. image. You know, and 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 so this this is what we uh, need in the world, as Ajahn said. The way to let's say, quote, fight back against cultural wars is not to fight, but to create, to make, to remind the world through music and art and theater and and dance that there is abundance in the universe, mm-hmm. even faced with severe scarcity. Beauty can reign because then, then because we see it, we see it in lives of these children now, nurses, you know, and and so so that 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 is everywhere. Actually, we just need to open our eyes to it, and beauty and justice can come together uh, this day um, in in our lives, and and that's that's what uh, I think I think it's important to realize. And and so just to clarify, the children that are now nurses, these are women that have children that were born in brothels, have come out, have become nurses in India, and they are... In the future, it will be. Uh, These these are um, girls that came out of the untouchable red light. light. There are um, uh, at-risk youth who are from the lowest caste untouchables. Mm -hmm. Um, they really didn't have any hope for the future, um, extremely poor. Yeah. And, um, you know, they've been told that they cannot be anything. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, it's not just them, but generationally, mm-hmm. right? And so, but they were given the opportunity to um, be educated and to be, to be nurses. And so they just finished a two-year associate program right. to let them to uh, have this ability and, and skill sets to care for the COVID patients and the street dwellers on the streets of Mumbai, you know, being the frontline workers, um, you know, as I mean, now they are. And then, and then on, on top of that, they finished their associate program uh, as top of the class. Yeah. So, you know, it's just a great hope there. And that's, you know, when Mako learned about them, he just saw that as just incredible beauty, yeah, you know, yeah. And and I would say, you know, I, I, I listening to you all the way through this, I've been thinking, actually, this should have been called What Does Love Look Like? Because really, that's what we've been talking, or you have been talking about the whole time. Well, that can be a song. Yeah, <laughs> What Does Love Look Like? <laughs> people... People might think that, you know, I like that title. You know why? Because people might think that we'll be, we'll talk about our dating, like, you know, like marriage, marriage talk. I'll bring you back for that because I want to hear that. I was like, okay, no, this is not about their relationship. I do want to know this, but no, no, no. We're talking about something else. Speaking of music, what music are you listening to? So my friend Susie Vera just uh, finished a composition for piece behind me was a response to her compo- composing using the um, sounds of melted glacier in the Himalayan hills. Amazing. And uh, she's a jazz percussionist, so she, she, she composed music surrounding it. Uh, we, was, we just got the vinyl uh, record of our collaboration, so I was just uh, listening to that. 
And Heijin, are you listening to the same thing or are you listening to something else? I'm listening to the same thing, getting to know your husband kind of. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this has been so, so wonderful. Makoto Fujimura, Heijin Shim, thank you so much for your time. I had so many other questions, but there is so much to chew on. So thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to Makoto Fujimura and Haijin Shim. I find the both of them so inspiring. What you won't have known because this is audio is that they sat arm in arm throughout almost our whole conversation. It was so touching. Do check out Mako's art and writing, buy his books. Also discover more of the work Haijin Shim does with Embers International. All details are in the podcast blurb. I've thought a lot about what I wanted to share with you as we close out season three because I always learn so much and the lessons I learn seem to perfectly place themselves or mirror what's going on in my own life at the time. But if I really went into it, this would be a three-hour episode with all my musings and you know, no one's got time for that. So instead, I just want to say thank you. I want to thank all the amazing guests who allowed me to interview them to Susan Chiburije, who manages the social media, to Elliot Roche, who masters the episodes and cleans up my edits, to Caroline Hill of Chill Create Studios and Devi Achira, who are responsible for the branding and podcast website. Thank you again to Airbnb for supporting the season through these conversations. And finally, and most of all, to you for listening. Do continue to share, like, subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you've been hearing, you can leave comments on Apple, rate and review us. Follow us on Instagram at Holding Up the Ladder and Twitter at HUTL underscore. And check out our brand spanking new website, HoldingUpTheLadder.com. We'll be back soon for more conversations with more interesting people but I need a break from editing and to concentrate on my own making. So for now, I'll end as I always do. Until next time.